Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Almost exactly three years ago, our church was getting started in late 2018. So if, if you are new to our church or if you're watching and you're watching for the first time, our church is a newer congregation. We're what Christians call a church plant, which we hope day one, one day will grow up to be a huge plant oak or a church oak, um, but uh, three years ago, we were just a little seed. We hadn't launched yet, and we, some of us in Madison, went back to our cathedral church in Illinois for my ordination, um, and it was a really special time because uh, we got to be super encouraged by other churches that are in our church network, and it was also a time where other people in our church network got to be encouraged by us in this new thing that was happening in Madison and what God was doing, and for those of you who were there, a small amount of us were there, uh, it was a absolutely heavenly time of worship, absolutely profound. One of those moments where you're like, this is, I mean, what is, what is this? I want to be a part of this. And after the service, um, a godly man in our church network, the Father Canon Stephen Gautier, which what an epic name is that, came up to me and said, in the middle of the service, I think I got a really profound word and vision for you and for your church. And he said, how awesome is this place? Surely this is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. He said, Jacob Ladder is for you. Jacob's Ladder is for Christ Church Madison. And so Father Stephen does not do that all the time. Um, some of us in this room know him. He lives in Illinois, uh, works with a bunch of churches in the Chicago region. Um, but man, I took that really seriously. And when he said it, it so resonated with my spirit. And so it sent me on this big journey of I had never really grown to love the story of Jacob's Ladder, but it was kind of like somebody saying, I think God has something for you here. You should mine and dig there, like X marks the spot. So I started digging, and since then have just had a profound relationship with this passage, so much so that our first service we ever had three years ago in Edgewood High School, which back then we met in the gym, I preached on this passage. So this like kicked off our worship was Jacob's Ladder. And now here we are returning to this passage as we've been studying the book of Genesis. Um, and you might like to know that we actually also lifted the entire set list of worship songs from that same Sunday to today. So we're, we're singing the same songs, we're reading the same passage. What a cool time for us to get to return to a familiar place three years later. Um, so this is really significant for us as a church. There's something about this passage that God has for Christ Church Madison in the city of Madison. It's also super significant in the book of Genesis, uh, which if you've been with us, we've been studying. It's also very significant for the way that Jesus understood his mission in life on earth. Man. So X marks the spot. We're going to dig. We're going to see why it's so significant for all of those things and people. Does that sound good? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you open up heaven this morning, Lord? This is so dynamic. It's such a beautiful, imaginative passage. There's so much here that's transcendent, that lifts the heart, that goes beyond what you can touch and see and feel. And God, would you do that in this service today? We cannot do it ourselves, but we trust that you want to in the gospel and we humble ourselves before you we want to follow where you are leading. And all God's people said, amen. 
Okay, in order to unlock and mine the riches of Genesis 28, we need to understand one idea and three background stories. One idea and three background stories. Here's the idea. There is a world you can see, and there is a world you cannot see. Let me say that again. There is a world you can see, and there is a world you cannot see. There's a physical realm, touching and feeling and seeing. There's also a spiritual realm. There are physical beings like you. There are also spiritual beings. And I know that kind of sounds a little kooky and maybe a little crazy if you start to think about it, like, wait, what? And there are some modern Western folks who would disagree and say that the world is purely physical, but they are a tiny percentage globally and historically. I'll talk about that in a little bit, but the vast, vast quantity of all history and cultures have believed in the seen and the unseen. And they felt it. They've experienced it. Religion is humans trying to understand the relationship between the two. How they go together. How you access what is spiritual. Who populates the spiritual world? What are they like? And the Bible believes it too. Colossians 1 verse 16, talking about Jesus, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and what? Invisible. Second Corinthians 4.18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporal, they're like chaff in the wind, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So there's a world you can see, there's a world you can't see, there's a heaven, there's an earth. That's the, that's the idea that you need to understand before you understand this passage. Here are the three background stories that go along with this that help us understand why this passage is so significant. The first story is creation. We've studied all of these in our church in the past two years. Genesis 1 and 2 teaches us that God created the world in such a way that there was harmony and access between heaven and earth. The key words being harmony and access. God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. That was a normal thing. It was beautiful. It was natural in Eden. The second story you need to understand to under this, understand this passage is the fall. When Adam and Eve rebel against God in Genesis 3, there is literally a separation that happens. Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden east of Eden, which is where Steinbeck got the title to his novel. They have to go away. By the way, someone in our church has a vanity plate with something from East of Eden, <coughs> Matthew, uh, if you want to talk to him about it. Um, but they're sent east of Eden, and the way back is literally barred by angels with flaming swords, okay? There's a separation that happens. Where there was harmony and access between the seen and the unseen, there's now this discord. Separation. Heaven and earth got married in creation, but they got divorced in the fall. Let me say that again. Heaven and earth get married in creation, they get divorced in the fall. And that is the Bible's answer for why humanity has always, ha has always had a searching, confusing, torturous relationship 
with the seen spiritual, with the unseen spiritual world. You were born to inhabit a physical world, a body of flesh, but as the Bible says, you were also born with eternity in your heart. You were born for a relationship with heaven. That's why God created you. But because every one of us has been born east of Eden in the wake of heaven and earth's falling out, we grow up with the profound desire for the transcendent, yet with the feeling that it's just beyond our reach or it's just behind the veil. Let me give you two quotes uh, that you've heard me probably say before, but I need to say them again. I probably quoted these three years ago. Um, The first one is this. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. I have one. I can attest to this. Well, there is such a thing as food. Mom's right there. A duckling wants to swim. There is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. C.S. Lewis. Here's a quote by his friend, which I quoted on our first Sunday ever, and this has been an important quote for me. This is from J.R. Tolkien. He says this, we all long for Eden, and we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature, listen to this, our whole nature at its best, at its least corrupted, its gentlest and most human is still soaked with the sense of exile. Ah, don't you just relate to that? Man, I read that and everything in me is like, I feel the sense of exile. I am soaked in that too. I love that quote. This is why all of our favorite stories have a portal to another world. I talked about this before, but let me just say it again. Narnia is all about this weird place where all of a sudden you're in another world. The platform of nine and three quarters is a place where you get to go and live your wildest dreams in a different world. One of my favorite new writers of fantasy is a guy named Neil Gaiman, and he's a British guy, and I've read several of his books, and so many of them, even different stories, are all about somebody who's living a normal life, but then somehow slips into a world that's happening right alongside the one he thought was all there was. Now, those are all British, which I find it fascinating that Britain is pumping out all these stories of portals to other worlds. I actually preached on this in England, and I was like, what is it with you people? You just are obsessed with like getting out of your world into another one. Um, But the rest of the world has been deeply transformed by all of those stories. They are our favorite stories. Now, there's one American story that has a portal to another world, which is our American version of it, and that is the field of dreams. (laughs) A cornfield where you get to baseball. I mean, that's like how American and Midwestern can you get. But that's why you love that movie so much. You're like, where did James Earl Jones go? Like, what's out there, you know? Um, Last men's night, we were hanging out, and on TV there was the game that the Yankees and the White Sox played in Iowa at the Field of Dreams field, and it was the highest-watched MLB game in 16 years. That includes the Cub World Series. Sorry for people who have a relationship with Chicago. This might be a huge reach for me, but I feel like that's not just because we love Kevin Costner and Hollywood. Field of Dreams taps into the transcendent somehow, and it, it, it perks your desire for it, right? 
This is why we're drawn to those. This is why there are holy places all over the world. Shrines, temples, cathedrals, stone hinges. Historically, humanity has put most of its talent and art and craft and money and time and resources into building sacred spaces where they are trying to access the spirit world. Isn't that fascinating? The most beautiful things. You can't go to a single continent and not find a place where it's happening. We do this instinctively, instinctively. No one told us that we have to do this or we need to. Humans everywhere have always done it. And no matter how, and I'm not trying to be like crass or something, no matter how loud Richard Dawkins shouts, that will never go away. Um, I read recently in an article in the New York Times by a guy named Ross Douthit, which I think is how you pronounce his name. He's a Catholic writer, uh, writes a lot of brilliant stuff in the New York Times, but he basically has this article and he says just that. He's like, no matter how much materialists try to make the world seem purely physical and that science is God and all this stuff, people have not stopped to experience spiritual things. They have not stopped to long for it, and he's like, I'm sorry, they never will. It's continuing to happen. One of the things he says is that Catholic attendance uh, in churches has gone down, but the demand and the request for exorcisms has skyrocketed from the Catholic Church. We are soaked with the sense of exile. And this leads us to the third background story that you need to understand in order to understand Genesis 28, and that is Babel, Genesis 11. The story of Babel is the story of people trying and failing to open up a portal to heaven. The Tower of Babel is a tricky story to understand. At first reading, to me, it seems like these people get together and they're like, you know what I want to do? I want to build a huge tower so that everybody's going to be like, you're awesome, this tower is huge, you know? And then God is like this adult on a beach watching kids build a sandcastle, and he's like, you can't build a tower, like, you know? And he knocks it over. It seems like a weird squabble. Um, but as Jesse Pruitt preached on last summer, and go talk to him about it if you have questions about it, and you can also listen to his sermon on that last summer, when it's read in its biblical and cultural context, we see it's a bunch of people trying to build a stairway to heaven. It's more of a ziggurat than a tower, which is the, the pyramid with steps. They're trying to open up a portal back to heaven by their own efforts, and they're trying to manipulate God to come down. They want him to descend. But it won't work because they've un- misunderstood God, and God thwarts their plan. Babel is a picture of human religion and its vanity if it's all by itself and it's just human exertion. We cannot find our way back to God. We cannot remarry heaven and earth by ourselves. You are like Kevin Costner running back to the cornfield and trying to figure out, how do I get, how do I get through there? He can't do it. Creation teaches us we were created to exist in harmony with the seen and unseen. The fall teaches us that sin has cut us off from God and the world. Babel teaches us we cannot get back by our own strength. And now you're ready to read Genesis 28 and truly see how crazy this is. So grab your Bible. If you're at home, grab your Bible. Uh, If you are here, flip to the Genesis passage in your bulletin. There's a little context. Last week we talked about how Jacob pulled the old switcheroo and stole his brother's blessing, and then he runs away because he fears his brother's wrath at the end of Genesis 27. And in this story, we find him en route. 
He is running away. Jacob is a cheeky, smooth man, pun intended, very clean-shaven man, uh, and he's running away. He's sweating bullets because he's reaping the whirlwind that he has sown. But then something happens. Verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and when he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep, and he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder, which some of your Bibles might have a footnote there that shows you could also be translated as a flight of steps. Behold, there was a stairway, a passageway, set up on the earth, and the top of it reached heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord himself stood above it, or some would say beside it. That's what he saw. Jacob sees a stairway to heaven. He sees a portal between heaven and earth, an opening, a breach between the two worlds. And he sees the ascending and descending angels, which is an exchange. There's a coming and going here between heaven and earth. And then he sees the Lord himself. And this is unique. Jacob doesn't respond by saying, hey, I've seen one of these before. This is like that, uh, that place, you know, back where Isaac used to live. You know, he's never, this is a unique thing. Now, what does he hear? He sees something, he hears something. Look at verse 13. The Lord stood above it and said, I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I'm with you. I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Such a beautiful, beautiful speech act by God, isn't it? Now, if you've been tracking with us in Genesis, um, you should rec recognize a lot here. For those of you who are here for the first day, we've been really digging into the blessing that God has promised and the promises he gave to Abraham. You'll notice a lot. You'll notice the covenantal blessing here. You'll notice the, the salvation uh, path where God is going to bless these people in order to bless the world. That's all here. Um, but then notice what he particularly promises in verse 15. Behold, I'm with you. I'll keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. In other words, this place where this is happening right now, where the portal is. So it's not a fluke. Jacob didn't stumble on it like Jack and the Beanstalk where it was an accident and he finds his way to the giant's house in the clouds. What a terrifying story. God wanted him to see it, okay? He revealed it to Jacob for a purpose and then he promised him that he was gonna develop it. He was gonna bring him back to it. And so all of this implies a part of God's plan to bless and redeem the world was to bring harmony between the seen and the unseen once again to make it possible for humans not to just feel eternity in their heart, but to follow that eternity to its destination, to get in the water and take a deep swim. 
How does Jacob respond? He shows he totally gets what's going on. This might be weird to us, but Jacob knew exactly what he was looking at. Um, I just think these are two of my most favorite verses, and again, these have been significant for our church, but man, 16 and 17 are beautiful. Read it with me really quick. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, which is what happens when people get in God's presence because of his awesomeness. And the word awesome here is not surfer awesome. It's uh, 19th century awesome. Uh, Sublime, the old way of using it. I don't know. You guys get it, okay? Old school awesome, not surfer awesome. And he says, how awesome, awe-filled, awe-striking is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of of heaven. And he gives it a name, which is Bethel, which means the house of God. Now, he goes on to make this cheeky deal with God. Uh, he shows that he, he like even tries to scheme God. It's kind of funny. And he demonstrates in verses 18 to 22 that he has a lot of maturing to do in his faith. He's got a lot. He's got to grow in his relationship with God, right? And don't knock him for it. He's not had an experience like this before. We saw how Abraham and Sarah, they had their own journeys of growing to really believe what God said. Jacob is not fully there, um, and we'll see his character really develop in faith, which is beautiful. But the most important, important part about this story is what God reveals at Bethel and what he says. So what do we learn when we dig into this? God's heart is to open up heaven to get the physical and the spiritual back together. And you can't miss the ways that Bethel is the opposite of Babel, the exact opposite. Two tall structures, right? But they're very different. Babel's the story of human exertion to try and get back to God and its failure. All false religion is Babel. Bethel is the story of grace. Its genesis is not from the ground up. It comes down from heaven. God opens it up. Jacob did not earn this in any way, and that's important. The last thing I want you to catch is the weird mixed metaphor that Jacob uses, but which is really important, and that is that the house is the gate, and the gate's the house. This is the house. This is the gate. It's like, well, which one is it? It's both, and we'll see how that becomes really important later on. So we see the beginnings of God opening up access once again. This is the first whisper, the first glimpse of what God was gonna do later. These are like the seeds that God is planting in Genesis that's gonna become something in the future which we can tell. It will flower at some point. Think about what we talked about last week with blessing. We saw this picture of a blessing kind of in seed form, but then we saw how later on in the Bible it, it takes on, it, it flowers in the gospel, and you see its beautiful, beautiful colors and full glory in the gospel. If this is the seed of a portal, where does it flower in the Bible? Where does Genesis 28 head? Turn with me to your gospel passage in John 1. Some of you might have noticed this when we read it. Background on John 1, this is the first chapter of the book of John, which is a pretty iconic chapter, and this is how the gospel writer chose to end the first chapter of John, which is an introduction to the person of Jesus. Um, he's 
just blew somebody's mind by showing him he knows him more deeply than he could ever imagined. And the guy's like, oh my gosh. And he freaks out. And then Jesus says this. Look at verse 51. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on what? The Son of Man. The men who are listening to Jesus are devout Jews and they love the Torah. And so just as Jacob knew exactly what he saw in Genesis 28, these guys know exactly what Jesus is saying. It is not lost on them at all. This is the flower of Genesis 28 seed. Jesus is saying, I'm the gate of heaven. Amen? Everybody say amen. amen. Jesus is saying, I am the way to get back to God, to the Eden from which you are soaked in a sense of exile. Jesus would even go to say on crazy things like, I'm the door. <laughs> you ever heard somebody call themselves a door before? Jesus called himself a door. Not only that, Jesus is the house of God, right? He would say things like, my body is the temple. So what does this mean? God provided Jacob a glimpse of the portal between heaven and earth at Bethel. But it was just for Jacob. Nobody else got to experience that. But God provided for the world his son to be a portal between heaven and earth. He himself is the great in-between. He is the place that the seen and the unseen overlap and come together in harmony. He himself is fully God who is invisible and also fully man incarnate in the flesh. He is the place where heaven and earth sing in harmony. And the gospel, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus did not just come to be that so we could all be like, wow, that's amazing. You are the great overlap. He came to open up heaven for you. Jesus descends in the gospel, right? He descends from heaven. He walks down the stairs. That's a huge part of how we understand the gospel story. On the cross, he takes in himself the separation that we had assumed by our sin when we were cut out. He takes our place in that separation. He offers us his access. And in his resurrection and ascension, he starts walking back up the steps. And he takes us with him. So the resurrection is the blowing open of what had previously been closed to us by death. And the ascension is him taking our humanity back up into heaven. So the entire gospel arc of descension and cross and his suffering, as we say in the creed, he descended to the dead, and his ascension is in some ways the arc of Jacob's ladder. Isn't that beautiful? But it's for you. It's so that you could come and have access to it. So that James Earl Jones isn't the only one who gets to go in the corn. Everybody does. Sorry for the uh, field of dreams analogy there. But even cooler than this, the Bible ends Jesus' ultimate intent, not just to give you access to heaven, but also in the gospel, the flow of the Bible is all about the marriage once again, the reconciliation between heaven and earth, which is why, how does the Bible end? With a wedding. Between heaven and earth. Listen to this. This is from Revelation. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven 
from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Amen. Now let me apply this in two specific ways, if I may, quickly. Um, First, I think this way of thinking about Jesus and this way of understanding the gospel has the potential to powerfully shape the way that we think and talk about Jesus in a world that is very interested in spiritual things. I've had the privilege of making many friends in the city of Madison um, who are of different faiths than me and who are of no faiths and who wouldn't ascribe to a faith. Um, And I'm not saying that this is not a thing in Madison, but I have never met anyone who thought I was foolish for being interested in spirituality. I've met a lot of people who disagree with me about spirituality, but I've not met a single person who was not interested in some way in spiritual things. And I have met tons of people who are seeking and trying to find and pressing against the spiritual world and trying to figure it out. Maybe if you're in this room, you're one of those people. You wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian or a religious person, but you are interested in spirituality and in spiritual things. Maybe you're watching and you feel that too. Do you see what Jesus is claiming in John 1? Do you see what he's putting before us? He's the place where heaven opens up. And he's inviting you in. He came to reveal what it's like to bring you back to God. Of all that's out there, he's the one who makes the best sense of our physical habitation and our spiritual longing. He's the one who comes to put it back together. And that's because he alone is both son of God and son of man, right? He's the one who descended and ascended the stairway to heaven. Hallelujah. I think this is just a really accessible way that we can talk about Jesus with people. I think people are open to that. It certainly excites me. Second, I think this revolutionizes the way we think about church. And I spent a lot of time on this three years ago, and I'll spend a brief amount of time on it now. Remember, as faithful Bible readers, we always want to connect the dots between Jesus and the church. Every time you see something about Jesus, you need to ask the question, how does this manifest in the church? Right? Because just as Jesus reveals God, the church reveals Jesus. And if Jesus is the place where heaven opened up, then the church, which is his body, connect the dots, his body, the body of Christ on earth now is the church, full of the Holy Spirit, is the place. The church is the household of God. It is the gate of heaven. The rock he sleeps on, Jesus would later take up that imagery, the rock at the house of God. Well, who's the cornerstone that was thrown away but has become the chief cornerstone? Christ, right? But then what does Jesus call Peter? The rock on which he will do what? Build my church. And the Bible calls us, members of the church, living stones. So we're all rocks being built up into a house on a cornerstone of Jesus. This is Bethel. (laughs) This is the house of God where heaven opens up. And that means when you speak with your friends, it doesn't remain abstract. You're not saying, 
Jesus is the one who can help you understand spiritual things. And read the Bible, there's a lot you can study, and it's gonna help you think about it. No, 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 no. You get to say, and I can take you to a place where you can experience it, where you can taste it, where you can hear it and feel it. That's the church. Amen? Now remember, religion in and of itself is Babel, okay? Um, Building a church, building, getting together and doing some spiritual stuff, you know, uh, doesn't mean heaven is going to open up. But when God's people gather faithfully in his son's name, think about last week, and are full of his spirit, something miraculous happens. When the Bible is read and faithfully taught in the presence of God's people, there's a mingling between heaven and earth because it's not a normal word. It's God's word, and it's alive, and it does stuff. Likewise, when we gather around the Lord's table for Eucharist, there is a profound, mysterious mingling of heaven and earth right here in this space happening before you. Remember, the sacraments are outward signs of spiritual realities. So there's a connection that's happening here. There's even a way that our church kind of flows up into the Lord's table where we start to mingle in the worship of heaven. Before we sing the Sanctus in a second, we're gonna say, and with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn, and then we join in. And do you get what we're saying? That there's a worship service going on right now, and we're about to join in and sing in harmony with the angels. (laughs) Right? We're literally about to do that. And we might question it and think like, really? Like my time growing up, you know, church was pretty boring. It didn't really feel like, you know, heaven opening up and Jacob and everything. But I have to give testimony to this, and I know some of you can too, that many times, like Jacob, I have been sinful, distracted, tired, and I have lumbered to church when I was expecting nothing. And then all of a sudden, the heavens opened up. And I wept and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. I remember I was in India for a summer as a college student. Lived all over India. India is so spiritual. And I love talking to Hindi people and Indian people of all different faiths because they're so, uh, they're so connected with the, the spiritual things, and they love to have conversations about those things. But I remember in the midst of living in Chennai, India, which is so spiritual, I found my way to this small fellowship of Christian believers. And walking into that space, I just can't tell you what it felt like entering even into the the sacredness of that space. And I was immediately overwhelmed by the thinness of this random, nondescript room where faithful Christians were gathering and preaching the gospel. How awesome is this place. This is what we are doing in Madison and Christ Church. Do you see how cool it is that this is something that God gave to us? This is what I want you to do in Madison. You're gonna build this house that's also a gate. So think about our little, uh, our little logo. Where do you see one of our logos? I don't know. You know what I'm talking about. It's on your bulletin. It's a house with a cross in it. We're all about coming home to Jesus and his church. Well, version 2.0 is gonna have a, a stairway coming out the back <laughs> of the logo all the way up to heaven where you can never see the top. But the house is a gate, and the gate is a house. That's what we're doing here, amen? We are a community coming home, and the house is a gateway. So as we continue to worship, know 
that we are in a place where heaven and earth are mingling. This is a profound place and it's not Edgewood's Auditorium, it's God's stones getting together to be built up into this house. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.